Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about whiteness in biblical scholarship. And joining me to do that, we have Grace Emmett, who is a PhD candidate in New Testament at King's College London. How's it going, Grace? Going well, thank you. Dr. Chris Porter, who is a postdoctoral fellow at Trinity College Melbourne. How's it going, Chris? Doing well, thanks, John. Reverend Daniel Parham, who is Assistant Director of Undergraduate Retention and Success at Biola University and an elder at Gospel Memorial Church of God in Christ, Long Beach. How's it going, Daniel? Well, John. Dr. Logan Williams, who recently completed a PhD in New Testament at Durham University. How's it going, Logan? Hi, John. Doing well. Grace Singling Ng, who is a PhD student in education at Biola University. How's it going, Grace? It's going well. Good to be here, John. And we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Ekaputra Tupamahu, who's Assistant Professor of New Testament at Portland Seminary, who recently published a piece on politicaltheology.com called The Stubborn Invisibility of Whiteness in Biblical Scholarship. And it's this piece that we want to dig into today. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Tupamahu. Thank you for having me. So Dr. Tupamahu, how about we begin by hearing a little bit about this piece? What are you trying to get at with it? So this piece, I, I, I think we need to uh, go back a little bit in my life. Uh, I grew up in Indonesia, and then I studied New Testament basically in Indonesia, reading all kinds of white scholars. And um, I went to Claremont School of Theology uh, to do my master's in 2009, not 2009 to 2011 in Southern California. While doing that, I was a pastor of, a, of an Indonesian congregation in Redlands, California, which is about maybe half an hour from, uh, from Claremont. So I was doing my study during the week, and in the weekend I preached. You know, I taught Sunday school, I, in, I uh, led Bible study and those things. Uh, one thing that I noticed that there is a gap, really, between the study that I had in, 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 at, 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 in academia and the life of Indonesian, Indonesian immigrants. And I always, I always listen to the idea that, you know, you have to get all the nuggets of truth in academia and then you apply it in, in the church. And I was like, I was not happy with that at all at the time. And I felt like that, that disconnection, I need to explain that disconnection. And the more I learned about New Testament, the more I realized that the academia, the scholars in academia asked different questions than the questions that people on the pews ask. And that revolutionized the way I studied the New Testament. So I studied New Testament not in order to find a nugget of truth in, 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 in academia and then apply it or preach it in, in the congregation, but I, I, the direction of a scholarship is the other way around. I start from the, 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 the struggle of the people on the pews, what people are doing on the pews, and bring it to the scholarship. And I noticed that something, something that I noticed that the questions the scholars ask are the questions that are asked by German scholars and English, you know, people in England. And, and, and it has, those questions are rooted in a certain particular historical realities that gave rise to those questions. post enlightenment and things like that, right? In the 19th century and 18th century, my, 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 my whole dissertation, when I wrote dissertation at Vanderbilt, I spent about 100 pages only to explain the, the, uh, the rise of nationalism in Germany, and also the, 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 the what do you call it, um, the romanticism in Germany, and how it influences certain questions and certain interpretation that becomes the dominant of the dominant uh, reading in the, of the New Testament today. So I was like, I think we need to change. So I, you know, when I when I asked the students to write their papers, I said, don't start with the questions that that the white scholars ask in Germany or in, in England or in, in the United States. Start from the struggle of your everyday people in the church. Start from there and bring those questions to scholarship. And I think that is a more responsible way of doing scholarship. So that piece, the piece that I, that I wrote here, is, is, is the background is actually this. And I, I try to shed light to this that, you know, the question of, of a synoptic problem, for instance, it's not, a, it's not a universal question that everybody has to ask, right? It's not a. It's not a. It's not a trans-historical, trans-transnational, trans-cultural question. It's a particular questions driven by a particular social context, driven by a particular social imagination that gave rise to that particular inquiry in biblical scholarship, and we need to shed light to that. 
and we have to point our finger to them. So uh, what happened is when I noticed in New Testament scholarship, you know, every other kind of questions is all this level, right? And it's not just in scholarship, right? You know, the beginning of the piece, I show how, how you know, ethnic food is termed ethnic and, you know, white food is just white, it's just food. And I come from a Pentecostal tradition. And uh, in, in, in my church, Assemblies of God, uh, the, the non-white churches are called ethnic churches, right? And then the white church has never been labeled as ethnic. You know, we are ethnic, they are not. So it means that, it means the whiteness becomes the transcendental self to which others are defined. That is the thing that I feel like we need to particularize. We need to bring that questions and those inquiries and scholarship and the trust process in the particular context and explain why that particular context is um, becomes sort of um, the atmosphere in which scholarship uh, grows and, and uh, emerge, I would say. Um, and that by doing that, we can give spaces for voices that are not white, right? That their concern is as valid as your concern. Even though they, maybe they don't talk about, they don't talk about, about the relationship between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know, maybe they, they are concerned more about the female experience in, in the Gospel of Mark, for instance, right? Or the, or the you know, ethnic argument of Paul in the, the book of Galatians, for instance. They are as valid or they are as, 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 as important, I would say, as, you know, the scholars who are busy with arguing whether Matthew depends on Mark or depends on who, right? Dr. Tupamahu, uh, you, you mentioned in, in, in your piece uh, about the invisibility of, of whiteness. And, and I think you also gave context to, um, in the context of, I think, like the contextual language, right? The, the, there's a different framework of even how the conversation begins compared to, I think, many origins uh, of people of color who approach the text. Uh, and you also mentioned you're coming from a Pentecostal background, which I think is another contextual layer of language, right? So there, there's, a, there's a linguistic piece that is also missing that I think that's tied to the cultural element. Um, myself coming from a Pentecostal background and, and then entering into the academy, it was, uh, uh, let's say, a whirlwind of, of education, to say the least, uh, because the language was not used and the practicality, I think, to what you said um, was, was invisible along with that. So how much would you say, I think in terms of the scholarship, um, there's somewhat of a divorce between the academy and the church, um, and, and how much of that is embedded kind of in the kind of whiteness uh, that, that is used as an approach to the study of the text? Because coming from the background that I come from, and then many of the backgrounds of people of color that I mentioned, there is no divorce, but very much being in these spaces, I feel the divorce that comes with scholarship and ministry, which seems countercultural to, to my background and to, I think, many backgrounds, you know, outside of kind of that white space. Oh, totally. I agree with you. And um, I feel like, uh, you know, the, the, the farther you go from America, the more you feel that distance, right? Even within America, I'm talking about my experience as, a, as an immigrant, immigrant uh, pastor in, in, in Southern California. It was, it was so detached from my life from Monday through, through Friday. You know, Monday through Friday, I, I was dealing with what cue and this construction of cue because, you know, one of my professors at Claymore was actually working on uh, reconstructing cue at the time. And I was, I was so busy with that, you know, writing a whole paper on that and things like that and presenting it at SBL, uh, National SBL and things like that. But then when I went to church on Sunday, I didn't even talk about it at all. Right. I talk about, you know, depending on God and things like that, you know, talking about how their life, you know, speaking English with like in, with, with, with the heavy accent, sometimes with, uh, with chaotic uh, grammar. Right. And it has to be in the workplace and things like that. So, 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 so the, the, the divorce and the touch is so real. And I was like, how in the world we can, we, you know, I feel like I live in two different worlds. And when I was writing my dissertation, I, I, I pushed this. I, I pushed this and I said that, you know, we cannot have this. We need to bring the questions to people, bring them into the scholarship because these are an important question, question of immigrants, Pentecostal immigrants in a particular location in the United States, United States they don't have voice, in a, in a, they don't have voice, not let alone scholarship, they don't even have voice in a larger community. 
And I feel like uh, I I feel like the, the the task of bridging this is not to bring the nuggets of truth in 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 scholarship that I always I used to have that all the time that you know you have to read Moltmann and those guys and Bultmann and others and then see with the scholarship and then apply it to the people and the peers. I feel like number one is very elitist, right? And number two, it, it, they ask these some questions from these people. That's why you see this connection is very, very real. I mean, not, you know, we're talking about in the context of the United States, within the home of, of, of Western world. You know, if you go to Indonesia, particularly in the village where I grew up, it's even the, the touch is even farther, right? And I, I think like the, 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 the way to do it is we have to bring back the scholarship, not only bring the scholarship, but bring the, the questions and the concerns and the struggle the daily side, the mundane struggles of people that to whom we minister to. I mean, whatever ministry we have, right? Uh, whatever capacity we have, bring that to scholarship. Because sometimes scholarship overlook those questions because they don't live there. How many scholars live among, you know, quote, unquote, Indonesian immigrants? How many scholars live there, you know? I mean, even, even among Asian Americans, Indonesian immigrants are the minority of minorities. So this is, the call is not just, to me, it's not, it's not just academic exercise and intellectual exercise. You know, we, we're dealing with real human struggle. And I think that is what makes scholarship matters instead of applying nuggets of truth from, from, from academia back to the, the peers and, and force them to understand the issues that they don't even ask on a daily basis. Uh, so in your piece, one of the particular issues you raise is the issue of the synoptic problem. And you argue that the synoptic problem is a, a question that's generated by the particular socio-historical circumstances in the Western world that were created, that created by the printing press. The social conditions that make these questions seemingly pertinent are contingent of themselves. They're uh, particular, they're located. They're located at a certain time and place in a certain culture. Um, what would you say to somebody who uh, would respond, uh, and I think I saw some responses about this going on on, on Facebook, who, who would respond by saying, well, it, it's, isn't the synoptic problem an inevitable question? Isn't it, isn't it a question that automatically arises to anyone reading these texts, right? So you can go back to Augustine and, and Calvin, and you can see that they're wrestling and looking at the relationship between these texts, and Eusebius is creating canon tables, you know, showing the relationships between all these Gospels. So how could you possibly say that the synoptic problem is not this universal and obvious problem that everyone is going to ask? You know, even with the printing press maybe, you know, accentuating those problems, you know, how, how, how would you respond to that kind of critique that this is actually a universal, a, a question that would universally arise for anyone? Yeah, um, and the claim of universality itself is very white phenomenon, right? That my question is everybody's question. Uh, and I would say that, um, that you know, through the history itself, the, the term genotic problem, if you notice, only, only appears in the 19th century, right? It, 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 the synoptic become a problem. That's why. Uh, the, the, the key word that everybody has to understand when they read this piece is the, 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 the problem, why this relationship becomes a problem. Without this, this sort of white sensibility that is tied to the idea of property and also copyright and so on. The synoptic problem, just sorry, there's not a relationship, is not a problem at all. It is, it, is, it is a certain particular imagination that problematizes that relationship. And I think it's very uniquely uniquely white European American imagination. If you go to Indonesia, if you go to other places, I went, I did my master's of divinity in, 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 in the Philippines. If you go to churches, people don't care about these things. They, that's what to say that this is a universal question is, 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 is not just, it's an imposition of one's question to everybody in a way. So I would say that, in, I, I don't say that it's, a, it's an invalid question. That's not, it's, it, it, that, that is a completely different issue altogether. Right, whether the, the question is, is valid or not, right? The, the, the issue is what gives rise to that because every knowledge is always embedded in a certain social relation, not only social relation, but a certain historical context in which we have to explain that. 
and then that's why I feel I feel like you know in studying theology, I I I I am drawn mainly to like historical theology because I find it more fascinating than just constructive theology or systematic theology. Because in historical theology, you can actually bring those thoughts down to history, to, 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 to the historical reality that gives rise to that particular uh, thoughts and ideas. So uh, I would say that it, it is very uniquely, uh, that, that, that kind of story, notice it, that, that, that just that kind of scholarship is, 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 a, is a uniquely uh, white European American question scholarship. So, Dr. Tupmahu, I'm really curious to hear how you teach the synoptic problem, uh, if you teach the synoptic problem, um, just some kind of like practical advice, especially for those of us who maybe include it in our New Testament surveys every semester. Just like everybody else, I, I always put that in the beginning of the uh, introduction to New Testament class. I have a whole session only on describing the synoptic problem. I asked them to read uh, uh, Mark Goodacre's book, uh, uh, finding ways to the maze or something. It's, that's the title of the book. And a few chapters from the book, I asked them to read. But then when I read, when I, when I explain that, I, I always emphasize that this is a uniquely question that I ask in scholarship. And I, I find it very interesting because some of the readers of my piece would say that, you know, I've never even heard the term synoptic problem. Uh, so it's very interesting because, you know, people don't preach over Q, for instance. Mark would actually disagree with the Q, with the next season of Q. But, 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 I mean, you know, in spite of the fathers, you know, father, you know guys, they try to, uh, you know, push in scholarship, but, you know, the dominance of sort of uh, the, the two-source theory or four-source theory, right, is still uh, around in, in scholarship. And, you know, you go to churches, people don't even talk about Q. So it's a very uniquely, not only, not only, um, not only a wide context, but also very uniquely sort of a scholarly debate. Um, and, and then usually in the second semester, because the, 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 the sequence of courses at Portland Seminary, the first one you have to go through each book uh, of the New Testament, and the second one we deal primarily with approaches. There where I nail it, you know, the first part I talk about historical criticism, reading people like Joseph Fitzmaier, People like David Allen from uh, Notre Dame and others, and 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 see how they they explain themselves, showing how particular historical criticism was actually a, a product of like you know 18th century, late 18th century, 19th century, post Enlightenment kind of kind of scholarship. You locate it there first, and then and then I begin to introduce like you know in the in 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 this in the uh, what do you call it in the, uh, in the 70s and 80s, you begin to have like literary critics. You know, literary critics come and say that, hey, you can actually read the text as a literary piece, right? And also, you know, feminists begin to, feminist movement begin to take place in biblical scholarship, post-colonial and others, you know. So, again, my approach is always uh, grounding it in a historical context. Uh, I think that is, to me, that I find it more fruitful than, like, arguing against the coherence of the, 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 uh, consistency of thoughts. Uh, you, typically, people argue for, against something or something using consistency of thoughts. I, 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 I tend to locate that in the historical context and say this is a particular context in which that kind of questions arise. Because within that system, there is an internal logic, right? That, that is very, very tight together with one another. They're very consistent in their thoughts and ideas, right? But but locating in a historical context is, a, is, is a, to me, it's a, is, is, a, is a fruitful move in order to give spaces for people, for my grandma, you know, who is not as scholarly trained, that her reading of the scripture also is, is as located as these people in scholarly level. I've, I find it really interesting. So being a non-American and being a person of color myself, but one who you probably wouldn't know by my accent or by my name. Chris Porter is quite possibly one of the whitest names that you can have as a Asian Australian. But uh, I find it really interesting. And, and the, one of the things that your article really hammered home for me is just the invisibility of whiteness. It's not just about we're asking white questions in the academy and therefore there's a disconnect from the church, but it's we're asking default questions. And those default questions happen to be the defaultness of, of white in my position i get I, I regularly get questions such as i 
I thought oh, you're white or I was expecting a white person because people say I, I write like a white person or I, I, I have a name like a white person. I, there's nothing about Chris Porter that stands out as a person of color. Uh, but I, I, as an Anglican as well, um, so I'm an Anglican priest, as an Anglican, it's a, not just a default church, but it is explicitly a white church. It is the church of the Angles the, the, of, of England. And yet the Anglican church has most congregants are not English. They're not British. They are people of color in uh, Africa uh, and in South America. One of the things that really resonated with your article with me was that the questions that they're asking are not just subtly different questions, but they're fundamentally different questions about how do you organize the church? How do you um, work within the context of a white church and, and a church that is explicitly white? Um, what I'm wondering is how do we shift the framework that we work from away from a default versus people of color or default versus color narrative and to a, a different narrative. I don't know what that different narrative is, but which influences then the questions that are asked because, you know, for my friends in Tanzania, they look at the synoptic problem and they go, well, of course there's multiple stories about the life of Jesus. We tell hundreds of stories about everything uh, and it's just natural. Uh, and so, yeah, interested in your reflection on how do you get not just uh, the academy to change, but the church itself. Yeah, that, that, that's a very good question, uh, Chris. Um, um, the reason the reason why we use that frame because that that is the frame that has been, I would say, uh, that that's the that's the reality of of, of uh, human uh, relations already. I mean, in a way that uh, I would say, like in my denomination, white churches have never been named as white churches, right? Um, it's in, it's just church. Uh, or it's just assembly of God, and then the other one is ethnic. The name has been applied to the other, but the name is not, has not been given to the cell, in a way. So um, if we understand this dynamic cell, self, and other dynamic, then um, then I, I find that that framework helpful to explain this phenomenon. Uh, can we move beyond this? I, I guess uh, I would say post-colonial thinkers pr would provide uh, a better, I would say, a narrative to to move beyond this because they talk about hybridity, for instance, right? That um, you know, Homi Baba in his book uh, Location of Culture, and many biblical scholars have already used that frame to explain this. Uh, um, I find it helpful in a way that uh, myself as an Indonesian. Um, has that element of whiteness in me because I've been trained in a white space. You know, I, I, I speak the language of the problem quite fluently, right? I speak English, <laughs> right? In spite of the fact that my, you know, English is not my language, in, you know, with, with a heavy accent, right? So, so that, that the, the frame of hybridity helps explain that the other and the self are not completely sort of separate, right? So there's that elements of um, in overlapping of cultures that um, that we cannot deny. That's why um, the idea of uh, purity, for instance, cultural purity, is very violent. Very violent. Uh, notice what happened with uh, Nehemiah, for instance, when Nehemiah was uh, so upset that people speak half language of Judah, right? In in the book of Nehemiah, remember that. Uh, you know, the next part of that story, Nehemiah basically beat them, right, in order to purify these people. So, uh, so the, the, the force for purification tend to be violent uh, because it seems, it seems like ripping off the, this sort of this, this uh, hybridity of culture that everyone in, in every identity is always hybrid in a way. So I find like, that particular narrative or framework of hybridity would, would, would be helpful for the next step discussion after, after locating this difference that has been constructed. So thank you so much for um, being here, Dr. Tupamahu. Um, I think for me being a Filipino-American woman, um, I just really resonate a lot with what you're saying and with your article. I felt like really seen 
when I read your article, I'm like, wow, like this person is like describing my seminary experience, you know, having that divide and disconnect of what I'm studying and what I'm experiencing and what the people at my church are are experiencing um, since I grew up in a Filipino American church. Mm -hmm. And then my husband was a pastor at a Korean American church. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, seeing like a lot of the things in biblical scholarship um, are things, yeah, people in the churches are don't really care about. And it just seemed really strange that um, even though I was in seminary and studying, you know, to be a minister, like, or to do ministry, like, it was really hard for me to actually apply the things I was studying. So I'm really grateful um, for your work and for your writing in um, bringing up that topic of the importance of seeing um, how biblical scholarship is located in a particular context. And so my question um, for you is, how do we bring that awareness um, to people? Because a lot of times, like as you said, the invisibility of whiteness, um, people are just unaware that that's happening. And so how do we actually bring that awareness and how do we implement that in our seminary education to be begin changing the narratives? Oh, that, that, that's a very good question, Grace. I would say uh, and that's the reason why I wrote this piece uh, from Political Theology Network asked me to write a short piece. They said like a thousand words. I said, I can't explain it with a thousand words. The original document is over 4,000 words. <laughs> and I said, I can do it with a thousand words. So, so much for me to say. You can also read the responses from Dr. Jacqueline Hill, Hidalgo, and also Dr. Angela Parker of the uh, McAfee School of Theology, and in the in the coming weeks, you you'll have another other two responses as well. But when they ask me this to write this, I feel like, sure, let me do it. And you know, I I I I told uh, some of my friends that I when I wrote it because it was something that I've been thinking through for so many years. Um, I I actually didn't didn't take this piece seriously. Honestly, I didn't take it seriously. I just wrote it one weekend, and I was like. Um, and when I, before I posted it, before I even posted it on my Facebook page, it's all, you know, people have already discussed it on, on, on Twitter. And I was like, I was, it came to me as a, as a surprise that so many people can relate to that because I, I actually didn't, honestly, I didn't take this piece seriously myself it, because it's probably in my everyday experience. I thought that maybe only one or two people are going to, are going to read that uh, text. So the, the, the way forward, I think, the presence of the other, the face of the other, if I may use that term from Emmanuel Levinas, Levinas, right? The face of the other has to be in front of, of, of people's face. When we talk about the other, it's easy to talk about it when the other is not there. But when the other is there, the presence of the other is there. I think it brings a lot of a, a, a different experience of awareness of authority and difference, right? Uh, why I say this, because I think in scholarship, particularly in biblical studies, we have to move away from only reading, for particularly in our reading list, not only reading white scholars and male scholars, but we need to expand our imagination, biblical studies imagination, to you know, people from Latin America, people from Asia, people from even diversity within the United States themselves. In my course, I invited women scholars to come and speak. Dr. Mitzi Smith came to my class and speak on her piece on, uh, on uh, Great Commission. And why is it Great Commission? Uh, in spite of the fact that there are so many commissions <laughs> in the Bible, and somehow this thing becomes great, right? And she, she, she had a really fascinating article, and I asked my students to read it, and then she came, she came to class, discussed dialogue, and uh, it, it helps tremendously decentering this sort of uh, white dominance and white default in biblical scholarship. And I think moving forward, Grace, uh, biblical scholarship and biblical scholarship classes, particularly in education, has to move beyond just reading um, sort of classic texts. We consider classic texts, right? Um, and also, I would say not only in, in, in master's program, but I would, I would push in a doctoral program as well, right? And I, I wrote in this piece that in, 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 in many um, doctoral programs, uh, comprehensive exam in the United States, particularly, it's a stack of books we have to read. We have to be familiar with this. We have to know Greek, uh, German, and French, not only Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and Syriac and those languages, 
right? But we also have to be familiar with the scholarship in order to show that, you know, we can do scholarly work. Can we expand? The question is, can we expand this bibliography to more than just sort of classic texts in the studies? And I feel like um, the, 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 the challenge is always the circle of, or the spiral, the circle of uh, training. If you are trained in a certain, certain situation and condition of uh, scholarly condition, you, you will tend to teach the same way. So, you know, we will be in that, in that circle. And it's so hard to break that circle, right? So, so um, I think it, it has to start from the doctoral program, meaning to say the professors themselves have to expand their imagination. And, and, and that, that is a, a big problem because many professors, you know, they don't want to expand their imagination. Like I show in, in one, one or two examples that I show in, in this piece and how they don't even want to read those texts, right? They don't even, they, if you use Wikipedia entry, it shows that you are not actually reading this text. It's an easy access. I mean, if I discuss you know, the problem and use, use Wikipedia entry, I don't think JSMT would accept it as a viable article for publication. Somebody has to, I feel like there's, there's a problem, there is a problem in, in the reviewing process. Somebody has to point a finger to that and say, this article cannot be published. With that, cannot. But nobody said it. It, it's, it, it, it actually shows that, that, that there is a systemic issue in, in, this, in the whole system of scholarship that needs to break, that needs to be break, broken before we you know, open the spaces for different voices to come. So this is a long answer. Thank you for the wonderful question, Grace. Um, Dr. Atif Maha, you've spoken about this sort of disconnect between wanting to acknowledge your own subjectivity, and, but also this kind of push for objectivity within the academy or this sort of facade of objectivity that whiteness drives. Um, and in your piece, you give this quite specific specific example of where you've been asked to cut this key section of an article, which is kind of particularising your location and what's driven that research um, and the frustration around that because it's actually key to the article it's not kind of an add-on um, and I just wonder if you could share ways in which you're resisting this sort of gatekeeping of white whiteness in other research projects that you've got going on at the moment yeah thank you Grace thank you for that question um, at this moment I, I'm working on a project on language struggle or, uh, again speaking of my experience on my immigrants right um, uh, it's, it's a daily struggle of immigrants, particularly in the United States. Um, you know, it's so hard for people to climb the economic ladder, not because they are not smart enough. Most of the time, or I would say um, often, uh, it's because they don't have English proficiency, you know, enough English proficiency. And, and it's, the struggle is very real among immigrants, uh, very real. And, Instead of asking the question, how do I make these people speak English better? I ask the question, why English? And then when you trace the history of the dominance of English, you know, America, it's, uh, America has never had official language because you know, it, it is against uh, free speech. So you cannot have official language, but English is everywhere. And then when you trace it, it, it is rooted, you know, as, as you might probably have already guessed, it's rooted in, in a long history of the connection between English and British Empire, right? Or, or American British, America as a former British colony. And also, um, you know, English all, all over the, the world. So I used this and asked the question in the past, this framework and ask, did early Christians also struggle with language? Or because language is the universal human phenomenon. Everybody has language. And, you know, and language struggle is everywhere. Did early Christians struggle with language as well? And I find it very interesting because I've, I've studied Greek for a long time and taught Greek for a long time too. And then there's one word that always, uh, you know, is used throughout Greek literature everywhere in, in, in non, non New Testament and New Testament. The word glossa, the word tongue is, you know, if you read Philo or you read Josephus, you know, this, this, the, the word glossa always means language. And somehow in the New Testament, it means unintelligible ecstatic speech. Right? If you read like the First Corinthians, for instance, uh, almost every commentary, Gordon Fee spent page after page after page in, in his uh, sort of massive commentary on, the, on First Corinthians to argue that this is not language. And I was like, what happened is this? No. 
And when I trace, again, that genealogical trace, again, history of scholarship, and I, begin, I find out that this particular interpretation, the tongues as an aesthetic speech, is a product of 19th century German scholarship. Prior to it, everybody understood it as language, prior to 18th century, 19th century. So, you know, if you read German a little bit, you know, you will see that in the in, 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 in 19th century, was, there was an explosion of scholarship on tongues in the 19th century. Gordon Field interestingly said that prior to 1960s, only two articles, and he said, hey, come on now, you know, you can just trace a little bit to 19th century and see German scholars in the 19th century, you can see a lot of explosion of scholarship. So it's rooted in, a, in this particular context in, in the, uh, in the uh, German scholarship. So I argue in that, in my, my, my current research, that we need to go back again to understanding tongues as, as human language, as a, as, a, as a linguistic phenomenon, which I think interesting because it can explain very well, for instance, uh, because Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 uses the word glossa in, 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 in both singular and plural forms, right? In, from, from 1 Corinthians 12 to 1 Corinthians 14. How do we explain this? I mean, if this is an unintelligible, like sort of gibberish, how do you make distinction between singular and plural? Right? In, with language, it's easy to, to distinguish that. And then I, and then the argument is that you know, Paul is actually dealing in First Corinthians fourteen with an immigrant phenomenon. The the immigrants who bring different languages to this to Corinth in 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 the first century because Corinth itself. Is a very commercial city, in, you know, in the, in the middle of, of the uh, Mediterranean world. If you notice, in the world, Corinth has these two uh, ports that connects the western and the eastern part of, uh, so you have all kinds of. And you know, Corinth itself has like, uh, you know, the the, the biannual uh, sort of uh, what do you call it uh, games, um, Isthmian games that brings all kind of is 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 a pan Hellenistic games that brings all kind of people from different places. So this is a hint to me to see the immigrant experience in the, in, in the city, not only in the city of Corinth, but also in the Corinthian church. So when Paul says that, you know, nobody understands, probably not because nobody understands that like, or the language is unintelligible, probably because Paul doesn't understand, right? It's a, it's a, it's a very classic move from, from, from in, in, in the Greek sort of ethnocentric um, mentality. And you know, if you don't speak Greek, you are a barbarian, right? Blah, 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 I don't understand your language. So it's a very classic sort of ethnocentric move. Uh, in, 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 in my particular research, I hope that it will be published next year. I'm still preparing the full manuscript now for Oxford University Press. I hope it will be published sometime uh, next year. But, you know, everything is very slow these days, including my prepare, preparation for that manuscript. <laughs> it's very slow. Uh, and I have two kids at home. So, you know, life is not just in office and academia. You know, you have family as well. So... Uh, I have to cut like a lot of my, you know, if you have published, you know, some of you have done it there. Yeah. So yeah, I have to cut a lot of materials from the original plan, uh, original uh, version of the project. But my goal is to show in that project that there is a certain imagination that gave, gave rise to certain interpretation that, you know, if you read every commentary in the New Testament nowadays, they are rooted in that particular imagination in the 19th century. And then I want to offer uh, this is the, the, the sort of the constructive move, I would say, uh, from this project that I want to offer another way of seeing is rooted not in a, not in a German nationalist, German Roman, romanticist context, but rooted in an Indonesian immigrant context in Southern California, very particular. But I have this argument on the basis of the text itself. So it's sort of, I, I use this sort of Bactinian, I, throughout the project, I'm actually using you know, Mikhail Bakhtin's idea of dialogical. So for Bakhtin, uh, you know, you don't come to text and then you treat the text as it, you know, as a, as a place in which you understand the text. And then, you, like, you know, Levinas said, you know, you grasp it, right? But, you know, what happened with you and the text is this, this sort of dialogical relationship, which is meaning always takes place in this sort of connection, a dialogical connection between you and the text. So. So I'm using this as a framework to say that, you know, from the subjectivity of my experience as an Indonesian pastor in the United States, in a, in a particular context in, in Southern California, I want to come to the text and say, hey, there's something here that many scholars, German scholars, and, you know, maybe they don't struggle with language. They don't, they don't see it as a problem at all. 
they probably struggle with this sort of some sort of you know what do you call it you know spiritual experience but they don't struggle with language but if you see this from from a particular side of human experience in southern california indonesian immigrants it can shed a, 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 a different light to the text that probably would be helpful to scholarship that's why i bring that scholarship and said this is probably a, a point struggle with more, more, more multilingualism in the in the mediterranean world yeah uh thanks dr Dumahu. that was a, a really great um explanation of the glossa language and i'm i'm interested especially because uh so in, in acts two we seem to have that where the intelligibility question as actually proof of the proof of the spirit coming uh so, so it is the reversal of the western question of, that we have it, to me acts 2 really highlights that nature of the transcendental church the, the church that transcends nature uh, things of culture and things of uh specific whiteness and things like that but it, it also seems to me that there it transcends a whole bunch of other things as well uh, i'm interested in what other categories that you can uh, that you see are also invisible, not just whiteness, yeah. uh, but I, I guess in in many ways, maleness is invisible in some Christian circles. Familyness, uh, so you know, you have to have be married with X number of kids. That's the default category, and so therefore, singleness is this other category. And so you have all this Christian writing about um, s- single books for singles and things like this. Interested in your reflections on a broader categories of defaultness i guess as we we could call them um and, and how do we address those yeah thank you chris my concern was in the project was mainly on the monolingual as a default category that when people think about order social order they always think about uh, monolingualism right to think about a multilingual order is to many people is almost impossibility uh, because monolingual is always a default category of order Right, and I, I, I mean, many, many uh, linguistic scholars have already challenged it, but uh, somehow we don't hear that a lot in particular social linguistics. Yeah, we don't hear this a lot in biblical scholarship. Um, I would say probably maybe because uh, many biblical scholars they just write in their own language. Uh, some German scholars write in English, but you know, uh, most biblical scholars write in their own language. They don't, they don't see it as a as a as a problem. But I want to argue that monolingualism has this whiteness, uh, whiteness uh, root as well. If you, just a quick, quick statement. If you see the English-only movement in the United States, it always has connection with white supremacy movement. And it has a long history. I have an article that will be out in, in December uh, by, um, with um, uh, Juno for the uh, critical theory and the Bible, Bible and critical theory, which is home in, home in, in Australia. Um, so uh, the article will be out in December, but in which I trace a long history of uh, the connection between whiteness and English language in the United States. So if you notice that in, in, in 1790, the first uh, Naturalization Act passed, uh, said that only white, free white person can be naturalized. Meaning to say that in the beginning of American history, the distinction between Americans and non-Americans have already defined by whiteness. And then in the 19th century, you have this, in, you have this sort of, um, you know, influx of, of different immigrants from non-desired, desirable Europeans, right, uh, coming to the United States, and whiteness becomes expanded. And then some, some, of, the, some of the people from the original whites, right, that, that signed this bill, begin to look for their identity. And you know where they look for their identity? They look for the, the language. So in the 19th century, which I think very interesting, in the 19th century, you know, the, this, this white Anglo people, they call themselves English-speaking races. So whiteness is now defined by English-speaking toward particularly the second half of the 19th century. And then in the early 20th century, 19-something, the, the law passed that requires every immigrant to speak English. So even until today in the 1965, when all the race, uh, race uh, requirements was removed, were removed from the United States uh, uh, immigration law, the requirement for English, 
remains until today. So if I today want to, if an immigrant wants to be a, an American citizen today, they have to pass English test. So there's an article wrote uh, in, 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 I think it's a Yale, uh, Yale uh, Law Review. Law reviews are interesting, article, you know, uh, areas if you want to study uh, sort of whiteness and, and this, because you can see how, how this sort of racial imagination is codified. Right in 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 American law, law. but you know they, this 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 article of Yale uh, Law Review argues that uh, English is one of these sort of uh, performing whiteness that every immigrant have to have to do in order to become American citizen. So so there's that close connection, and then what happened with the Book of Acts is an interesting dynamic in which order is no longer defined through monolingualism. So I argue, I think, you know, I, I want to I push this argument that the book of Acts is an early response to Paul. So what you see in Paul is this reinforcement of monolingual order in 1 Corinthians 14. Because Paul says that you have to be translated, and if you're not translated, you have to be silent. And Paul, at the end of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says that because our guys got peace. So Paul builds the theological argument to argue that you have to be silent because our God has got peace. And then if you notice the term, the, 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 the phrase, speaking in tongues, never appear in other, other Greek literature, in the Septuagint, in other, you, you don't have that. So Paul is the one who coined the, the, this, this unique term, speaking in tongues, or glossais lalei, or glossé, if you, if you use the, 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 the singular form, glossé lalei. Paul is the one who coined The book of Acts picked it up. So, so if you study the relationship between Paul and Epistles and, and the book of Acts, there's this whole debate whether, whether you know, Luke is aware of, of Paul or not, right? And people that seek a Barrett would say, that, no, no, there's no awareness of Paul in letters at all. I said, no, if you see this direct quotation of the uniquely Paul term, it seems like there's an awareness of, of the book of Acts, uh, of First Corinthians at least. And if this is true, then probably we can say that Acts chapter 2 is the response to Paul. The, the earliest response to Paul. If you erase different languages, the book of Acts opens it up. Create, so the group of Acts somehow constructs a different narrative than the narrative that we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. That is probably the category that I'm working on right now. Uh, it has something to do also with whiteness and things like that, but, but it, it, it is centered mainly on using monolingualism as a default category of, of social order. I'm interested also in, in those other default categories. Uh, so singleness, perhaps, or maleness, or, or familyness. One of, those, one of the things that, that seems to me that you're getting at is that we came to, seem to keep trying to define defaults. We want to define what a default is uh, so that we can categorize the world. What are the other defaults that, you, that you're seeing in uh, both scholarship and, and in the church from a position of being outside of the hegemony of, of the cultural hegemony that we, we find ourselves in. Yeah. Scholars have talked a lot about, you know, Christian as a default category. So, you know, the study of religions, for instance, right? Uh, using Christian theology as a, as, a, as a category to understand Islam and Hinduism, right? Um, you know, queer scholars would argue that, you know, um, uh, heteronormativity, as, as, as a default category. Uh, we can go on and on and on with this, right? This is the reason why I would say the, 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 the category of post-colonial, post-colonial category of, 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 of uh, hybridity um, is, is extremely helpful to understand so many of these social phenomena that, that we face. It's not like the, the best category, I would say, but it's one of, I would say, you know, one of the most helpful framework, you know, to understand social dynamic. And, and many scholars have used that um, as, as, as um, sort of hermeneutical lens to understand um, biblical text. But, but yes, uh, Chris, what happens is always when the self is the dominant self, then the self becomes, becomes the default category. If, you know, maleness is the category, then femaleness is understood as weakness and things like that. Uh, when I taught uh, feminist uh, biblical interpretation, I start the question in class with discussion. You know, when you hear the, the, sentence, the, the, question, the sentence, you do something like a girl, what do you mean? You know, what, 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 you know, what comes to mind? 
So, and I said, who defined this, right? The girlness, you know, is a male gaze, right? Because maleness becomes the, the, the sort of the default category. You know, uh, I, I can go on and on with this, but you know, Sigmund Freud has, a, has an essay on femininity. I don't know if you're familiar with that, uh, that he argues that the femininity is what is lack, right? It's, an, it's a penis envy. Uh, because you know, when 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 a girl grow up, they, they see that there's, there's additional something in in a man in in a male that you know that that marks the lacks in in her. That's why femininity is defined by lack. The, the lack from what? From the default, right? Maleness becomes the default category. In, in this discussion, I, I agree, Chris. This discussion can be expanded to many different categories. I totally agree with you. You mentioned. Uh, in response to a Twitter thread that the main problem with many major commentaries is that they are methodologically very conservative, which makes it hard for Asian, Asian American voices to be heard. But when you were fleshing out that, that term conservative, it was not a political theological ideology that I was sensing. It was, it was very much kind of couched in an ethnos, like ethnocentric mindset. So to think on a practical level to what we've been talking about, like we, we want to hit the streets of the people that we serve in the church, which is also the academy. How do we help reframe this conservative type of argument that's used? Uh, many times when I hear uh, the introduction to what you said in terms of uh, scholars of color being visible in the academy, there is this argument that many of these scholars come from liberal movements or uh, these scholars don't come from conservative backgrounds. As, as I've become a little bit more knowledgeable of what that word can encompass, a lot of times I, I sense that that means that, well, one, they're not white, and two, they didn't come from our theological uh, background. Hence, uh, there's something erroneous about what they present to the academy. So how, how, do, how do we, dispel that myth, I would say lie, concerning people of color who don't get positions in the very spaces that actually need the training, while those spaces say that the people who need to train them actually need the training, and there's this skepticism uh, from them, right? And I think, I think I'm answering a little bit of my question. There's a level of superiority that's there, but, but I'll interject that myself. Um, but like, how do, how do we practically deconstruct this conservative uh, this conservative language that's used to dismiss uh, scholarship from people of color. Yeah, I think I thank you for that, Daniel. Um, I th- th- there is a long history of that, particularly in the United States, the debate between conservative and liberals, right? And in the beginning, I would say in the 19th century, the debate is mainly mainly between uh, those who uses um, who use historical critical methodology, right? tend to be more liberals. And those who believe that, you know, like uh, Noah Ark is a real, you know, event and things like that, right? Uh, but then nowadays you have a very interesting because uh, the conservatives, quote unquote, conservative scholars, evangelical conservative scholars, tend to be the, 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 the gatekeeper of, uh, of historical critical methodology. So, so, so the term itself evolves, right? The term itself evolves, the term liberals and and conservative. I used that particular term in the in the context uh, of the discussion in the Twitter thread. And, and if you read the next sentence of of my essay, I say that I use the term conservative here in order to explain that this whole system is intended to conserve, I use to, to, to preserve a certain way of thinking. And I think it goes both ways. It goes in the sort of mainline or liberals or whatever terms we want to use, and or evangelical, right? Um, in order to maintain a certain structure of knowledge and certain uh, certain um, uh, categories of knowledge, and, and that's what happened in the in the commentary settings, right? Uh, uh, most commentaries are written by a certain particular uh, scholars with a certain particular agenda and certain particular questions and approaches, right? Uh, that's why even though Asian Americans write in a certain in a series of commentaries, you don't even see any Asian voices. In Asian American voices there, because it has been, um, sub, I would say, not subjective, but you know, whitewashed probably in that particular space. And, and again, let, let me repeat. Let me step back a little bit. I always 
find the, particularly in political debate in America, the framing things with, with the idea of liberals and conservative, very unhealthy for me. I always find it com completely unhealthy. Maybe because of myself, you know, remember I, I grew up in Coastal, I went to Vanderbilt. So, so I, I go all over the spaces, right? In, 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 in different spaces. I, you know, I have a lot of friends who do a lot of different scholarship. I have, you know, friends who work in the church setting you know, and things like that. So uh, I always don't find it healthy to frame, you know, whether a certain scholarship conservative or liberal in, in that sense. There's some, that's the reason why I add the next sentence in that essay to say that I use the term conservative here intentionally to show that and the, the whole system is, in, is intended to, uh, or designed to, or maybe you know, unconsciously or unconsciously, right? To conserve a certain structure of knowledge. That's why I call it conservative. Yeah, and again, it can, both, it can go all over the place. It can go in, that's why, to, 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 to non-evangelical and evangelical space, right? Yeah. I remember in, on, on Facebook, one, one person argues that how in the world you know you call Hermenea series a uh, conservative you need to read the text you know read, read my essay <laughs> maybe we so, could say that it's preservative preservative probably is a better term yeah. like, I agree with That's you very, very concerned with preserving the status quo preserving whiteness preserving white methodology but that's the whole idea of conservative, right? If you understand the word conservative, conservative is intended to conserve a certain Same thing, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Certain values, certain system of thoughts, certain certain habits, social habits, and so on. I think that's helpful to um at least to deconstruct, you know, the binary to actually identify people who might seem progressive or deconstructive or radical or are actually really, you know, subtly interested, maybe not so subtly interested invisibly interested in uh, preserving a kind of methodological status quo, cultural yeah. status quo. I wonder, as, as a closing question, for those who are embedded in the world of, of white scholarship and have never known anything different, have never taught anything different, do you have any specific suggestions for how they might go about starting to decenter the whiteness of their own perspective, but also thereafter the whiteness that is so pervasive in biblical studies in general. Of course, the whole podcast has been about that, but I've, I just want to open it up to if you have any like specific reading suggestions or um, syllabus suggestions or anything that you found helpful in your own work or that you, you'd suggest to other people who, are, who just kind of swim in that water and don't realize that they're in it. Uh, thank you, Logan. Um, I think one of the texts that um, I think very helpful to me is uh, Tony Morrison's uh, Playing in the Dark or something. That's the title of the book. Uh, very small book, but he argues about the invisibility of whiteness, particularly in American canon literature. And she, she talks about the act of reading as an author. I, I find it fascinating instead of the reading as a, as a reader. So when you read as an author, she argues you can see why a certain certain events are organized. You you can you can see behind the scene. You see she uses the idea the 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 the, the uh, analogy of fishbowl. So if you read as an author, you like go out of the of the fishbowl and see the fishbowl instead of inside the fishbowl and swimming with the with the fish. Uh, that analogy is very helpful reading as an author from um, Tony Morrison. That means that you know there is that lack of self-reflective, self-reflective scholarship, particularly in many white biblical scholarship. There is that effort to detach themselves from the dialogue with the text as though they just you know want to deal with the text without bringing themselves to the text. And I think what needs to be done is a serious self-reflection. It's a very serious self-reflection, meaning to say that they have to read a lot of materials on their own history, right? And how a certain question that they asked was actually influenced by that historical process, which I think is hard work to do. Many, many, many black scholars do it all the time. Asian scholars do it all the time, all the time. We name it. And I think that the homework for many white biblical scholars that you said, Logan, who, who swim in that water, is to open the ice and see the water. If they cannot go outside the, the fishbowl, like Tony Morrison said, but at least they have to be able to understand the, the, 
the, the water in which they swim. There's a, a new book uh, by David Horrell, it's right in front of my, uh, David Horrell is a fascinating scholar in himself, but um, the, the last chapter of this book is on whiteness and Christian universalism. Implicit whiteness and Christian superiority, the epistemological challenge. This is probably one of the books that I would say, uh, you know, read, that we need to read. Uh, how he locates uh, biblical scholarship in the you know, water of whiteness. And books like this are very important for us. They're not just book that deals with the text, but also with the scholarship of the text. Well, Dr. Tubamahu, this has been a, a fascinating and helpful conversation. Thank you so much for your piece, first of all. And then second of all, thanks for processing it with all of us on the Two Cities podcast. We're really grateful to have you with us. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you'd like more engagement of theology, culture, and discipleship from the two cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on the Two Cities podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.